Hi everybody, it's Megan. I'm so excited to have you here for this episode with Megan Hillica, who talks to us about the death of her daughter suddenly, Aria. It's just a gorgeous episode. You really are going to learn from her. She does a better job describing some trauma treatments than I ever could in such an encouraging way. It's really gorgeous. I want you to know that before she and I sat down to talk, we had a quick sort of setup because it's important in trauma, an agreement that she wouldn't go deep into the details of her trauma, that we would sort of stay above. And she's done so much trauma treatment that she was able to do that. That's important because I'm not her treatment provider. And in trauma, we can get sort of reactivated into our body and some of the fear and the upset. So she and I both get teary, which is normal when you're talking about conversation, but about death and loss, but she's not triggered. So I just want to make sure that you all see that distinction. The other thing is if you are listening to the podcast and enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you went over to Apple Podcasts and gave me a review, one of the written reviews and also the stars. This is just one of those wonderful ways if there are enough reviews where it pops up and Apple lets people know it's there. Thanks so much for being here and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am here with Megan Hillica. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Megan. I am so excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. And I know it seems weird to be excited to talk about grief, but it's such an important topic and it's, it's my world. So thanks for having me on. I love how you just said that because I'm like, yeah, no, I do this all day long and I love it, <laughs> which is the perverse thing, except that, you know, when you, when it sort of becomes who you are and it becomes your mission and you find meaning in it, it's, it is, it's mm-hmm. an exciting and meaningful thing to talk about. So, so what I always ask when people come on is just sort of like, what brought you into the world of grief and loss? How, how did you find yourself here with us? Yeah, it's been five and a half years. I was 36 weeks pregnant with my third, no, my fourth child and my third child died in the night. Aria was 15 months old and there was no cause, no reason, no anything. It's similar to SIDS, but SIDS, it changes to SUDC after a year old. I didn't know kids could die in their sleep for no cause or no reason at that age. And as they get older, and as I found out, SUDC is a thing like any person over a year old, it can be anyone can die of it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, there's no, we don't have a cause or reason, anything. She just died. I found her in the morning and it was, I had my two little boys with me at home and I was 36 weeks pregnant. It was horrific. Like, I think no matter what, no matter how your child dies, you just, don't expect it. You don't like you're, it's such a shock. Your body just goes into like, uh, how is this my life? How is this my daughter? What? I mean, I don't even understand what's happening because this, this shouldn't be happening. Like all of this stuff, like it's so shocking. And even now, like, even though I talk about it all the time, I get hit by moments of like, I can't believe this is my life. Like, I can't believe I have a daughter who would be almost eight. And it's hard to like, even try to imagine her being, you know, I guess she would be almost seven in, in our lives. It's just, it's hard to even, I don't know, wrap your head around it. 
That thing that you just said is something that I think grievers say all the time. And there's sort of grief and loss speckled across my life where I, where I sort of pivoted and made it my job was when, after I had PTSD, after my mom died and, you know, when my dad died two years before my mom and then my mom died. And I would say to my husband, I know, I know she died. I just can't believe she died. Mm-hmm. And both things were true. It was like this and both, like, I, I understand there's a part of my brain that mentally, under- you know, in your head, you, you get, get it. it, get it. The facts are the facts, but, mm-hmm. but also my imagination and understanding of the world does not include my mother not being in it. Yeah. And I just can't like update the data. Yeah. Totally. In my head. So you, how, how many, how many kids did you have when Aria died? Was she one of three at that time? And you yep. were your fourth. So how yep. old were your boys? So they were four and two and a half and they were home. They saw her, they saw me working on her. They, it was very, very traumatic for, for me. And I don't know, like our, the boys are now nine and eight, almost 10 and eight. Okay. And we had, we had taken them to therapy and we talk about it. We openly talk about Aria. We talk about if anything comes up, we discuss it, but it's, it's kind of that thing of, I guess they're going to have to, you know, like as we can support them, but they have to process as the layers come up. And if we need to go get help again, we will, it just, we just lean into it and see, but we're very open and talk about her often in our family. How how did you guys survive that? I mean, I mean, that's such a stupid question. I'm asking like a stupid question, but I, (laughs) But I mean it really genuinely. What is the next day like? And the next day and five and a half years later, like I heard you say, well, we took the boys to therapy. So I know that is somewhere Mm -hmm. in the story, but how did you survive that? I think the most first answer is like, I didn't have a choice. And I say, okay, so I have so many things to say. I say that I didn't have a choice, but I also told my therapist that, and he was like, you do have a choice. You are making the choice to come to therapy. You are making the choice to live. You are making the choice to do the grief work and sit with it and like figure out how do you live with grief and all the stuff you're doing the work. And so I say, I don't have a choice. I had many choices I could make, Yeah, that's right. I didn't have a choice in that this happened to me and I have to learn how to move forward and carry her with me and sit with grief and process grief. Like I, I didn't have a choice in that, in that it was, it was what happened to me in my life. Right. And then for me, I had such a deep motivation of, I felt like my mental health, cause I had PTSD too, after she died and my mental health, like I didn't know how quickly your mental health could be taken away from you like in an instant. It's just like, whoa, I felt stable. I felt like, you know, fairly normal and calm. And all of a sudden I felt crazy. I felt like I was losing it all the time. I couldn't ever relax. I was, it was horrific. And I just wanted to feel normal again. I wanted to feel like I could take care of my kids without having to rely on other people. I wanted to feel like a normal mom, my normal self as a mom. And so I feel like that was my motivation. I remember looking at pictures of myself 
before Aria died and I would just ball and ball and ball because it's like, look at how happy I look in that picture and I will never have that again, ever. I didn't think that joy was possible for me. It was kind of like, well, I'm 23. What am I going to do? Like, I, I mean, am I just going to live this way the rest of my life? It felt so hopeless. Yeah. I don't know. I just wanted to feel normal. I wanted to be happy, even though it felt so hope or so hopeless. I had talked to other moms who had lost children or child and I saw hope in them. Yeah. I saw hope that, you know, they had learned to live in some way with it, that they had some sort of joy that maybe it's different. Maybe it looks different. Maybe it feels different but that there was hope. And so then I would just kept doing the work. I went to therapy. Like I said, one thing about therapy is like, we might go to somebody and be like, oh, well, they didn't help or I didn't like them. It's like, well, I went to three different people before I found the person who I stayed with for a long Mm -hmm. time. And I like maybe a year I went, but the, the person that I ended up going with, I did EMDR with for my PTSD, that's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And I did that for about eight months, twice a week. My first year after she died, it was absolutely survival mode. Yeah. I had tons of help from my friends and family and that I'm very lucky and blessed. And my husband was amazing. He is amazing. My church group helped a lot. Like I had so much support and love and help. And so From that, I was able to really just, I let go of all my responsibilities outside of our house. I just was like, I need to focus on my grief. I need to focus on myself. I need to get better from my trauma. Like I needed to heal the trauma so I could function. So I would tell people, this is my full-time job. This is what I do. I, I go to therapy. I go on runs. I go on bike rides. Me and my sister in law, we, would trade watching each other's kids at that. That had to be after a while. Now I'm trying to remember when that was because I couldn't watch people's kids yeah. for a long time. Totally understand. Um, yeah. I was like, I don't want any kids dying on me. I, I could not watch other people's kids, yeah. but we traded like watching each other's kids so we could go on runs and bike rides and I would run and run and bite. And I like had this stress ball in my chest and I tell people this stress ball is killing me. It's yeah. from the inside out. And so then when I would run, I'd focus on that stress ball and like run it out and like feel like feel that stress and like pound it out of my body as I ran. And I can as feel I that in my body when you're describing me, it, I can feel it. It's, it's like, horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. Like it's like eats you from the inside out. And I went on so many runs and biking. And I mean, I, I feel like I did so many things too, not just this, but what I want to say with this is I would go running and very intentionally say things like, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to be okay. As I would run, I would think these things over and over and over in my head. Like, I'm going to be okay. I'm, I can do this. Like noticing any hope or feeling of like lightness in my body as I'm running, I would like latch Mm -hmm. onto that and be like, see, I'm going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And I feel like that was a major thing for me as well as I mean, everything that I was doing for me felt really good and, and helped. Well, you have such an intuitive instinct about things that therapists have written papers about using a mantra that you come up with yourself helps Mm -hmm. you lock into the hopeful thoughts as Mm -hmm. opposed to what can happen, which is I'm not going to survive this. I won't 
And we think that that's sort of innocuous, but it isn't, you know, we create our realities based on our thoughts and our experiences. And when you've had this horrifying experience, it's hard to imagine, no, no griever that I have ever met that has been handed this like giant burden of energy, which is sorry, your life has been cracked into, Mm -hmm. you have to figure out how to grow into it. No griever is like, yeah, I got this. (laughs) I know how to do it. No No problem. problem. (laughs) No problem. And I, there's that Greek myth. I think it's a Greek myth myth of Sisyphus. He's like rolling a boulder up a hill and it rolls back down on him every day. And it's, you know, a definition of hell, but I think grief feels like that for a very long time until it doesn't. Mm-hmm. A lot of what I study and know about as a trauma therapist has to do with the brain. And, you know, one of the things about the brain is it learns, right? If I wanted to learn how to do a front handspring, which would not be recommended for a woman my age, but if I wanted to do it, I would have to, have, you know, create a series of repetitive movements that my body came to understand was then a handspring, right? Like mm-hmm. kids just jump into it, but you know, older folks, we got to like will ourselves into doing this and then we know how to do it. And then that possibility of me doing a handspring exists Mm -hmm. with grief. There is no possibility of surviving the, the sudden unexpected, insane death of your daughter. You have to create it. And that's what you're doing when you're running, you're taking the energy, this like grief watermelon that you're given to carry every day and you're running it out so that you can manage yourself and your body somehow. I mean, it's, yeah. and, and what it reminds me is that we really are wired to, to survive and heal, mm-hmm. even when it feels like we're not, I would love for you. I mean, I, I practice EMDR, I'm trained in EMDR, but I feel like when I talk about it, I talk about it and I have been a recipient of it. It was game changing for me because mm-hmm. I had a lot of images of my mother's body. Mm-hmm. Could you, you know, without having to dive into your trauma, could you just explain it a little bit? Like, cause it's a little bit voodoo magic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I can explain it from my perspective as yeah. somebody who got it rather than like, so the way I think of it, and this is like very non-scientific, this is the way it. that my brain understands it. Yeah. And as I've learned more about it, I understand d- deeper levels of it. But the way that I understood it when I was going and getting EMDR done was, so you have your right, excuse me, your right hemisphere and left hemisphere of your brain. And I think I I thought of it as, and this is what I would actually imagine when I was getting it done. So I have these two sides of my brain and the trauma and you have those pathways that connect the right side and left side, right? And the trauma cut those, it cut the the pathways to be able to connect your left side and your right side of your brain. So they couldn't communicate with each other. And the EMDR helps you rebuild those pathways. And so as I was getting it done, I would imagine that too, like imagining a new pathway being rebuilt from my right side to my left side of my brain. And then another way that my therapist described it was like, your memories are files in a computer and trauma is the memory that can't be filed. It's just constantly up in your screen and you can't put it it, like you can't file it in your brain. It's like, oh, this was in the past. This is what happened. It's always there in the future. And EMDR helps you file that as a past memory rather than an ever present trauma. That's a memory that's living, you're living over and over and over. And for me, Obviously sleep was my trauma, sleeping babies. And I had a newborn four weeks after. So I was, it was, it was horrific. It was, 
So I was so tired. I was so stressed out. I just want to share, I can share a little bit about what it was like, just because I think it's important for people to know, like, oh, maybe I have some trauma. Maybe I could go get checked out. Like, there's something about like, people will tell you like these things like, oh, just do this or that. But with trauma, you have absolutely no control over your body and how your body reacts. So this is one example, my newborn, I would, she was sleeping next to me in my, you know, like in a bassinet next to my bed. And I, some, a friend had said that, you know, what helped her was somebody had told her that, okay, I've done everything. Now I'm putting it in God's hands, putting my baby in God's hands, and I'm going to go to sleep. And that helped them go to sleep. And so I'd be like, okay, okay, I'm going to give it to God. I'm going to go to sleep. She's on her back. She's fine. Like she has a monitor on like everything. She is, she's fine. But I would lay down and not even five, probably was like 30 seconds later, I'm shaking, panicking. My heart is pounding. I'm shaking her. I literally like shook her all the time. Like, so she would move her arms and startle so that I would, oh, okay, she's okay. And then I'd have to calm myself down. My heart is pounding, mm. taking deep breaths. Okay, lay down. And I'm like over and over, over and over and over and over. Mm. It was like nonstop. I Anywhere I went, I had to have my hand on her belly. So I'd yeah. know that she was breathing because I just was like, she could stop any moment, you know? So the, the EMDR helped me process that trauma and that being in such a state of fear. And what we did was I had buzzers in my hand. Yeah. I like Um, too. Yeah. So the buzzers went back and forth and I was just able to close my eyes with the buzzers. And I, what I absolutely loved about my therapist is he let me lead the way. So he never like forced me to like go down a memory or be like, okay, you have to do this or that. He would just say, okay, what's coming up for you today. And I got to lead like, okay, I want to go through this. I got to be in charge of that. And so that gave me a sense of control instead of being like, you have to, okay, let's remit, let's relive the day your daughter died. It was like, I got to be like, okay, as I held the buzzers, I went, I closed my eyes and I went to a memory, whatever it was. And we actually went through a lot of childhood memories too, that brought that same sensation of panic and fear in my body that I didn't even know had brought that panic and fear in my body. But we went through and processed those just because that was actually how we started just to ease into it was he was like, do you have any other memories that you feel this sensation in your body? And then we just, that's just kind of what we did every day. And we, and he would, you know, watch me and watch for signs of stress. He would say like red zone, yellow zone, or or green zone, orange, I don't know, whatever they were, but he would make sure I never got to red and he would stop it. And then this is actually for me, the most powerful thing I ever learned. And it's what I do with the moms I work with now is noticing what was happening in my body. Mm -hmm. And so he would stop the buzzers and then he would ask me, what's going on in your body or what do you notice? And then I would describe to him what I felt. It was always in my chest, this huge ball of stress in my chest. Sometimes in those sessions, I thought it was going to explode. But by the time I left every single session, I had so much hope. I was like, I can do this. Like, I'm going to be okay. I I would go home from my sessions, like almost crying with joy because I was going to be okay. Because I felt so much 
stress in the things, in the sessions. And by the time we left, I was calm. I was like, oh, like it's possible to feel all of that, all of that emotion, that stress, and also feel calm. And I'm going to be okay. And that was, it was absolutely life-changing for me. And I would highly recommend anybody to, to look into EMDR if they have trauma. First of all, thank you so much. I mean, Megan and I are both a little teary about this. (laughs) I think because we have both been on the receiving end of sort of the magic of what EMDR can do, and you've described it beautifully. And, you know, what it's reminding me, and I'll just say out loud for our listeners, is that this treatment has been around for over a decade. It exists and people are trained in it. And all you have to do is Google therapist, (laughs) the name of your major city and EMDR. We're out there and we're trained. Mm -hmm. And for some people, it can take a year of EMDR. You know, the images that I had that really haunted me, it took two sessions to get, I can still remember them but they don't hijack my body the way that you're describing. And so I just want to give like one tiny little bit of neuroscience in here. So people understand this, that when you go through a terrible shock, your mind calls on what it has. And in, in, in this instance, the hippocampus, which is this tiny little part of our brain codes our memories and it overly codes traumatic memories. It's so shocked. It's got adrenaline running towards it. It's got kind of like the wrong chemicals around it. It codes these terrible pictures. And for many people, it's also thoughts, which, you know, come back to you at times Mm -hmm. when you're relaxed. Usually when you're trying to relax, you are startled back. You are kind of time traveled back into this space. And what EMDR does is it calls up the memory We ask you to think about the memory and then it does the firing of the brain because we're tapping on your left hand and your right hand. So we're making your brain fire exactly as Mm -hmm. you said, across the crown Mm -hmm. of your head while the memory is active. So we're, it's like, we're unplugging some of the light bulbs into the memory and we're plugging them in to other places. And once you've done that, you know, there's this the idea being that you are literally creating neuropathways. Mm-hmm. And one thing that you keep talking about is you were reaching for that hope and reaching for that hope. I mean, for most people to survive untenable things, we have to be able to find and feel and see the mm-hmm. hope. Mm-hmm. And it just feels to me like you had that match, that that already was a part of your personality and who you are and what you wanted to be able to do. But I'm also, I just really want your, the audience to hear you were working your ass off you were it working was, yeah. ass off to get your life, you know, to get a handle back on your life. Yeah. And yeah. It was not just like a, like a passive thing no. that like, I think that's the thing is sometimes we think, well, I just, I'm going to float through my, not float through my life, but it feels like my life is shattered and it's done. And so now I'm just going to give up yeah. and kind of like, just, this is the way it is. And I'm like, there's so much more for you. There's so it's so possible, but behind that is a lot of work. It's a lot of being brave to feel your emotions, being brave to feel what's going on in your body and connecting with your body. I think we think that we have this vision in society that um, being strong means like picking yourself up and shoving all your emotions down and not Mm -hmm. showing your kids that you're sad and not putting, you know, and it's like, 
actually, I think the brave thing is the opposite of that is being soft and being open and learning how to sit with your grief and your pain and being honest with yourself and your kids. It's the opposite of what we think of as being strong. Absolutely. My nine-year-old son's best friend knows that I specialize in grief and loss and he lost his grandfather recently and he was over here for lunch and he said, oh, Ms. Megan, Ms. Megan, I want to tell you something. And I was like, what? And he pulled, he said, I'm studying this. I put it up on my Instagram and it was the Taj Mahal. And I was like, oh yeah, look at that. That's beautiful. And he was like, no, you don't get it. The man, you know, he's nine. The man built this because he was so sad after his wife died. Can you believe it? That's how sad people are. And I was like, yeah, man, that's how sad it is. It's so sad that that guy spent a million, a billion dollars and it took 33 years and he built the Taj Mahal. That's how much work grief is. And so part Mm -hmm. of what I appreciate about when, you know, when people say like, no, it was hard every day I woke up. Mm-hmm. Everything I did was hard. Everything hurt. I had to reconnect with my body. I had to manage my thoughts. I had to exercise. I had to eat. I had to, because I didn't, I didn't want to drown. I didn't want to lose mm-hmm. my life. Part of the reason I love that and appreciate that and have that on the podcast is we act like that is not what it is. And that is what it always is. It's never not this it's, way. Yeah. It is so much work and it's so exhausting. It's like, the most draining thing. And that's why I had to like say no to everything else in my life. All my commitments, all my, anything I did to help other people in my life. I was like, I, nope. And actually my energy, I need all my energy to grieve. And again, when I just said, it's never not that way, that's not true. There are many people out there that are grieving in the, in the way that we think of grief as, you know, an acclimation to a new reality. What you and I are talking about is traumatic grief. Mm-hmm. which is a, a beast in and of itself, which is a sudden loss that hijacks your system, overwhelms your central nervous system and, you know, puts an imprint in your body that then it's like losing a limb. Mm-hmm. You have to then do all of this physical therapy, which is emotional therapy mm-hmm. to get yourself back to a place where you feel like I know how to walk out into the world. Yeah. yeah. And it, it is not for the faint of heart. And I don't think anybody who who is experiencing grief is just like, it's such a, when it's your, this was my, my first time experiencing like heavy grief of a loss. And it was just like, I I didn't even know I could feel this depth of emotion or this depth of pain or this, like how everybody else would begin to move on and everyone else's lives moved on with their kids. And we were just like, we, I don't know what to do with myself, you know, yeah. but it, it, yeah, I wouldn't underestimate the work. That Will you tell us a little bit about what you mentioned a moment ago, which is like, you got to know the emotions and working the emotions through. I know that's something that you work on with the folks that you work with. Can you, mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about how you have transformed your own personal loss into sort of guiding other people through what, you know, the work looks like. Yeah. So obviously because I've lived it myself, I know what it feels like to grieve and feel the deep pain. And what I find so beautiful about grief and like supporting women with grief is that 
a lot of people are really scared of that pain, scared of that intensity of that emotion. Definitely. But for me, I know that they have to feel that emotion and they have to sit with it and process it in order to find any joy and any sort of like calm or peace or whatever they want after losing their child or, you know, losing somebody in your life, you have to sit with that, that darkness. And so I guess I just, I learned myself. I learned how to feel my feelings. I know how, I know when I'm feeling something in my body, I know how to name all my emotions. I'm very aware of when I have an emotion in my body and that my emotion is driving, say, if I'm getting angry, I'm very aware that I'm reacting from the anger in my body and maybe the thoughts that I'm having in my brain, just different types of things. I'm very aware of that. And I've learned that I really, I really believe that that was how I'm able to be where I am today because I can hold space for grief and I can hold space for joy. I have space for both because I've built that container and that capacity within my body to feel all of it and not judge it. I think we think that we either need to be all joyful or all sad. And a thing that I learned is life is 50, 50, that I, I really love thinking of this, this way, because we think like, Oh, I'm grieving. I should be doing better. Like what's wrong with me. How come I'm not, how come I'm not better yet? Or like, I, I would, I laughed, like what's wrong with me. And also you feel guilt immediately because you laughed for the first time or, and life is 50, 50. When we let ourselves feel that, that negative, heavy emotion, we also can allow room for the, the 50% that's beautiful and light and positive. And that, I think it, it helps us let go of the suffering of, okay, say you have guilt from feeling joy, but what if you can let yourself feel the joy so that you have the strength to feel the pain? Yeah. When you allow both, you're allowing yourself a full human experience rather than sometimes we just want to only have the joy. I would say most of us want to move away from the pain into joy and like lighter and good emotions, you know, and, but then we're, we're fighting and struggling and wondering what's wrong with me. How come I'm having a hard day? But when you can know that life is 50, 50, and you know that these emotions in my body, when I experience them, they're normal and they're okay. And when I allow them to flow through me, they, they cycle and they move on. When I fight against them, they stay stuck. When I have resistance against them, I stay here longer. My, my goal is to get out of here, right? I don't want to sit in this pain, but when I resist it, I'm actually make it be longer. I actually sit in it longer rather than if I sit with it and allow that energy of that emotion to flow through my body, it is amazing. And the moms I work with, it's so amazing. They're always like, I didn't like, I thought it would feel so horrible to feel that, but it actually all of a sudden I feel better now. Like what I, they're like, I don't know what happened. I don't know it's, what happened to the emotion. The other thing that I'm thinking while you're talking is that, you know, when you're not resisting emotions and emotions, again, they're little electronic currents that cut that reside in our body and move through our body and come through our body. And when you get to be sort of an emotional expert, you can know that you generally feel fear in your stomach and you feel Mm -hmm. anxiety or, you know, joy in your chest. So you can 
whether you know what you're feeling first, do I know I'm feeling joyful or you feel it in your body first? Oh, there's that energy. Mm -hmm. I must be feeling joyful. You become kind of like, you know, a a translator, like you have a fluency and what your body wants is permission to feel all the things, Mm -hmm. right? It just, because that's the human experience is we feel all the things, somebody somewhere, I learned this a long time ago, like by two, we have felt all the significant major emotions that a human body can feel. So like we already, we know how to do it. Mm-hmm. What happens in grief is they collect in a certain way in a constellation and they go through us much more often and much more frequently with much more intensity than we're used mm-hmm. to, but our body just needs to learn how to do them. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and to not assign, I love that you use the word suffering because in that Buddhist tenet, you know, suffering really is our ideas. Mm -hmm. our thoughts about our feelings, Mm -hmm. about our emotions, instead of just letting us have them. And what you're talking about in the grief work, which I really, I just, God, I love the way you're talking about it is increasing your capacity. And I imagine for the moms that you are helping, that you are working with, you are the hope, you know, the hope balloon that's being offered (laughs) because here you are saying, no, no, there's joy to be had on the other side of this. And your story is so untenable, right? I mean, anytime I have a mom who has lost a child, part of, on my show, in my life, part of what I know that they have heard from friends, well-meaning people is, oh my God, I would never survive it. Mm-hmm. Guess what? No one ever thinks they can survive it. There's yeah. no, you, you can't in the moment that it happens and yet you do somehow. And it's because we're wired to survive and- there's work that you end up doing immediately, mm-hmm. like immediately in that moment, you, you negotiate the system and you have to function. Yeah. So I imagine for these moms who are sitting across from you five and a half years after this tremendous loss, what they are looking at is the face of someone who's telling them, no, no, no. If I can do this, you can do this. And I can't imagine you know, more doctorates or more, you know, money or specialties that would be more convincing than that, you know, being able to sit with a mom who says like, it can be done. Yeah. That's something I actually always say is I tell them I'm holding on to hope for you until you're able to hold it for yourself. Because when you're in that space, no matter what I say, no matter what they don't believe me, they're like, no, my, my life is over like they have such dark thoughts, heavy thoughts. It's, it's hard. It is such a hard thing. And so I'm like, I, I will hold that hope for you and I'll keep being with you and right. And you have those with dark you. and heavy thoughts too. So you, yeah. have, you know, I often say that to people where they're like, well, I just don't see that. I don't think that's ever going to be the way. And I'm like, that's fine. Yeah. You can borrow on my belief of it or yeah. not, but I really believe it because mm-hmm. you know I kind of know it from the inside, which I think whether we even say it out loud to the people that we're working with, I think they can feel it. Right. Which is like, I'm not going to move you from where you are because I don't think where you are is a problem. I think it's totally appropriate. Yeah. That level of devastation is completely appropriate for what has happened to you. Mm -hmm. And also we're not going to stay there forever. Let's take a walk. Let's move the energy in. Yeah. Right. Totally. Because it, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with grief and they think that you know, like you should be moving on already. Like what's wrong with you? And that I'm very much like, no, it's okay to be there. It's okay to sit in that really heavy space. It might be scary. It might be heavy and sad and dark, but it's a part of grief. And it's, I I don't think any of us wants to be there. 
but it's just what we have to sit with in order to be able to feel there's one thing that I would, so like, yeah, I don't think people can see me, but there's one thing I learned from, I think it was from Brene Brown that when you numb the heavy emotions, you're also numbing the, the positive emotions. Right. And also if you imagine, like, say there's like a middle ground and then below that is the heavy emotion or like the darker, you know, more painful emotions and the depth that you feel those painful emotions that also opens the capacity for the joy that you can have. So the deeper of the pain that you can feel, the more joy you can also feel, which also might seem crazy when you're in such a dark place. But for me, I feel like I can feel so much more in my life, positive and negative, and it's all beautiful. And it's so deep and rich because I've felt such pain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that God, you describe it gorgeously. And again, you know, and I say this because I think it's really important because the general population hasn't heard of EMDR. And I think we think of things like therapy as come in and tell me your problems. Mm. And that is a kind of therapy. And I do that kind of therapy, but I also do treatment and treatment is like, you know, come in and we're going to move some Mm -hmm. things around. Mm-hmm. And EMDR is a treatment. I think it's really hard when you're grieving and you feel your mother-in-law looking at you like, you're, why are you still sad? And you feel her judgment, right? And you're like, fuck off this. You have no idea how hard this is. Mm-hmm. I also think, and you and I have this experience that there is traumatic grief mm-hmm. that maybe if you hadn't sought treatment and I hadn't sought treatment, we would be telling a very different story because I can't do EMDR on myself. I mean, Mm -hmm. one of the most fascinating things for me was I knew exactly what was happening to me. I knew it from Mm -hmm. neurological standpoint. I knew it from a behavioral standpoint. I used every, I mean, I have a bunch of master's degrees in all of the trainings Mm -hmm. And I couldn't stop the PTSD from setting in. So probably the only thing that all of my education and smarts got me was to a intensive provider faster than the average bear would have gotten there. And also because I had good colleagues that were like, come on, you know what this is. You've got to make hard decisions here. And I did inpatient work because I wasn't sleeping and I hadn't, you know, I didn't sleep for 20 days and I didn't eat for more days than that. And your body can't get well if that's what you're if it can't, you know, have macronutrients inside it. But what I want to say to folks is there's this spot where it's not clear. Am I going through a hard thing, having a hard time, and it's going to sort of do some natural resolution on its own. That's maybe enough with my community and my church and whatever. And then there's this other spot, which is like, am I getting sick and unwell from this? So what I want to say to folks is one, there is this thing called the ACEs, which I have some folks coming on in a few weeks to talk about it, but they're adverse childhood. It's a hard, it's a hard screening tool to go read. So just be gentle or take a person in on Google with you, mm-hmm. but there are 10 childhood events that include poverty and incarceration of a parent and a death in the family and drug addiction and that kind of stuff and abuse and neglect. And, and if you have those in your life, you tick a box. And once you get to four, you are at a higher rate of susceptibility to trauma in your adulthood and lots of other difficult health outcomes. And I think when you're not sure, is this traumatic, is this trauma that needs treatment? 
go to a treatment provider because the deal is EMDR doesn't know whether you're traumatized or just having flashbacks that would resolve on their own. And EMDR will help you either way. Mm -hmm. So if you're in that state where you feel like, God, I am really suffering, not what do other people think of you? Those people can, you know, take that somewhere else. (laughs) But if you, if your symptoms are getting worse, if you do not feel like I have any kind of hope or handle on this, that is really what the treatments can offer. I think. Mm-hmm. And I wish, and you know, it's my soapbox and it's the thing that I work on all day long. I would like to help the world be able to distinguish between the two that yes, you know what? Grieving is something we largely leave people to do on their own. We shouldn't do that. And also there's a subset of the population that's going to get sicker mm-hmm. if we leave them to do that. And if they get sicker, they're going to do things like start drinking, you know, and dissociate and fall mm-hmm. away and we'll still be caring for them. We'll just be caring for them on the other side of things. So I just want to say, you know, you went right into, I am fighting for my life. And I so appreciate you describing that and helping us understand what that looks like, because anybody who's listening, if this is your story, start with an EMDR provider. This Mm -hmm. this is what it was made for. This is what this treatment was made for by a, you know, a very smart woman who only died a few years ago. We only have a, we only have a few minutes left and I have like 90 more questions for you. So <laughs> one thing I do, I do really want to ask you a little bit about Aria, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how is she present in your life for you now? Yeah. You know, one of the, yeah. One of the things that I think people are afraid of is that when my child, husband, brother, cousin, whomever dies, that I will only ever feel the loss of them. And I love what you helped us see a minute ago, which is it's a 50, 50, both. And you will never not feel the loss of her, but I am Mm -hmm. imagining you also feel the life of her. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious, like, how is she in your life now? I feel like in so many ways, we talk about her a lot. I have four kids that have never met her. So I've had four children after she died and they talk about her, they're playing and they, again, how many talk about our family? How many do we you have? We have seven, including Aria. Okay. We should have started. We with... have six living. Wow. That is, I'm one of six. That, okay. that, that is a football team. And I love that. <laughs> I love it. I'm one of six yeah. and it's, you know, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So you have seven. Yeah. Kids. So we have seven and I actually, another way is like, I just had another baby. Oh, she's nine months now, but there's just so many ways that she reminds me of Aria, just like mm-hmm. the way she looks, she, she's really tiny, like Aria was. Mm-hmm. So like, I feel like in so many ways I get connection through her, like just feeling, being able to hold her just, we have books, like a few books, memory books of her yeah. that our kids look at a lot. We do different, her birthday is actually in like a week or so, the February 16th, whatever day that is Yeah, next week. And normally we have gone to the Ronald McDonald house and Mm -hmm. served a meal last year. We weren't able to, or was it two years to no last year because of COVID and this year, I don't know yet what we're going to do, but we do something to like do something special connecting as a family. And we like to do something to give back. We did do the Ronald McDonald meal because she had a surgery, hip surgery when she was one at the Ronald McDonald or at a hospital. And at that Ronald McDonald house, we went there a lot. So 
that felt really special. And now it's like, I don't know what we're going to do this year, but Mm. it just feels like we, we just mainly we talk about her and hold her still as part of our family. We have pictures of her in the bus. Even we're traveling in a bus right now. And we, yeah. That's the other thing I wanted you to tell our listeners about, because again, I just think that there are a million different ways to construct a life. And I, you know, have read a little bit and I'll put your stuff in the show notes, but can you just share folk with folks? What does it mean to be in the bus? Yeah. <laughs> yeah so actually the bus is also inspired by Aria. So yeah. it's when we, when she died, I feel like one of the biggest things I learned is that life can end at any moment. My husband could die. I could die. My other children could die. And like to really continually, it's not like I'm just really good at it, but just to continually focus on being present right now, right here, right where I'm at and creating my life that in a way that like, I'm happy to live my life and I want to live it. And I'm, I'm living my life now rather than for the future. Like not saying you can't plan for the future, but a lot of people will say like, we said, yeah, like we said, we're like, oh, when we're retired, we'll go live in a bus. And I was like, we have no idea if my husband's going to be healthy, if I'm going to be healthy. Like what if either of us dies before then we're not going to, we have no idea if we'll get there. And so we just started to figure out how can we make it happen now? We took a school bus that was, uh, had seats in it, just regular school bus. And we emptied it completely out and changed it into a motorhome. Me and my husband built it out and it was the one of, I can't say the hardest thing, but one of the hardest, most challenging things I've ever done with my brain and my body building. I bet. It was so challenging because everything has to be custom Perfect. built, custom yeah. made every like it's you're like creating something out of nothing and it was it was so hard my now your brother's a boat builder and he's always talking about trying to fit like another drawer in this tiny bathroom (laughs) yeah you got to get creative yeah Yeah, now we're traveling the U.S. with our six kids um me and my husband and we are currently in Louisiana and we are just going all around spending a year how long a year it's you're going to no, be gone. a year is our plan. We've been about three or four months. We left in October, maybe four months in the bus. Yeah. Well, I love what you're talking about. It's something I say to people all the time, which is, you know, if you have a longing and a desire, there is no guarantee that you will have the capacity later. Mm-hmm. And so if you have the capacity, you kind of owe it to your longing and desire to show up for it right now. Cause mm-hmm. also how we feel about things change. You may decide that you don't want to be traveling the world when you're 67. And also, and I, I can't imagine this is something that, you know, but after my mom died, my family and I took a trip. I have three kids, threw them in the SUV. They were only allowed to bring backpacks. And we drove from our home in Washington, DC, sort of up through Michigan, all the way landed in Montana first and stayed in Montana for a month and then went to Utah for a month and then went to New Mexico for a month. We didn't get all the way to the, to the West coast. We didn't go to California and, and all in Oregon and all that, but we, we dropped down and then came back out through Tennessee and it took us about four and a half months. Wow. you know, people had a lot of like, wow, that it was during COVID. I mean, I, when I think back of it now, I'm like, what? It was before vaccines. We didn't get out of the car except to go Mm -hmm. to 
national parks, which were completely empty. We slept on the rim of the Grand Canyon. We walked up to the to the office and said, do you have any rooms? And they were like, you can sleep in that one. And those things normally book out like a year and a half in advance. But most, most comments were like, that is such a good thing that you're doing for your kids. You know, they're going to, they're going to learn so much for this. And that is true, but it was really driven by the fact that it was hard for me to sit still. I really, after my mom died and I got out of treatment and I came back to this house, which is a beautiful house that I love it was really difficult for me to sit still in my Mm -hmm. energy. My husband is a, you know, sounds like your husband is also an excellent man. My husband was like, tell me what it is that we need to do to make this manageable. Mm -hmm. And it was an incredible time to be acclimating my brain to this new reality of living without a person that it had never occurred to me. I would live without not Mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, go to Zion and see the sun. And it was very much a like, wow, the world. I mean, we were in the Badlands, South Dakota, and there was like a thunder and lightning storm, like nothing I've ever seen. And it looked like the surface of the moon. And there was something about like, you know, dinosaurs, <laughs> like the age of time and feeling like terrible, awful things happen and the planet survives and people survive and, mm-hmm. you know, it felt very weirdly celestially hopeful. So I love hearing that you're on this trip because I imagine you are plugging into energy in the universe. That's really important to plug yeah, in. It's, it's been really good. It's been a good thing. And just learning how to keep continually learning to be present in the moment, right? That's just, that's the thing for me to learn. Tell, tell my listeners if they want to be in touch with you, what's the best way? Let's tell them about your work and you have a podcast. I know that you're have a website presence. They want to know more about your story and sort of the gifts that you have to offer. How do they do that best? So I have a membership that is for grieving mothers. We have two calls a month where I do like guided meditations and tapping sessions. Everybody has a chance to chat and talk and really like have a space that their grief isn't too much and they can really be honest and real. So we have those. And I, I think the meditations are one of the most amazing things in learning that they're like you, a lot of, a lot of them for the first time, feel the hope in their body when we do the meditation. And then they're like, Oh, wow. I didn't know my body could feel this. I didn't know I could feel calm. I haven't felt this since my child died. So that's what we do in the calls. And then I have a lot of meditations and tapping sessions that they can do on video and audio. So they can do at any time. They're like sudden loss, tapping meditation and anger, like for, for specific emotions, guilt and anger, whatever sadness. And then I also have a program in there that goes it's life after child loss program. So that's a whole nother thing, but that is grieving mom's haven. It is really a place for a mom to come and find tools to find positive coping mechanisms mechanisms and build that capacity to feel and experience grief and also hope and joy in their bodies. And then I have a podcast called Grieving Moms Podcast, and you can find all of this stuff on meganhillica.com. That's my website. And if you want to learn a little bit more about what I do before, like if there was a grieving mom and she wanted to join Grieving Moms Haven, she could do, I have a workshop, free workshop. It's meganhillica.com slash workshop. And I have a, I am going to put a few more in there, but currently the one that's in there is how to get through grief. And then I'll, I have a few more that I'm working on right now. 
I am going to spend some time on your website. I'll, I'll put all that in the show notes and the Podbean show notes for people who are looking for it. I'm just really appreciative of not only what you're offering everybody, but just how you're offering it. You know, I, I really think that the only way that people can get through incredibly hard things is to believe in hope. And I bet if Mm -hmm. we, you know, did a little word count of how many times you use that (laughs) word, Um, but you know, as a therapist, as a trauma therapist, that really is what I think of myself as just someone who is going to hold the hope and, Mm -hmm. and, but your story is the kind that people think is unsurvivable because it is until you learn how to survive it. And yeah. for you, you know, five and a half years, you and I know that's not, that's like a blink of an eye. And mm-hmm. for you to be able to offer that to folks, you know, well, let me say this, if you weren't offering it, that would also be okay. We don't have mm-hmm. to pull up yeah. five and a half years from now, but yeah. I think being able to transform some of the pain that you've been in to connect to other people and offer them a hand back and say, you know, just follow the light. If you can yeah. follow the light, it sounds like your platform has incredible stuff to offer. Meditation is in 2020 meditation became the thing that I stopped just telling people to do. And also started to do myself and a little less hypocritical <laughs> knew it was important. And I know it is important. Yeah. So I'm just going to urge anybody to reach out to you, to come and look at your platform, to come and, and join and, and become a member if it's something that they need and to check in the show notes if they, if they need anything. Thank you so much, honestly, for reaching out. I'm really, really grateful. Your description of EMDR was just like better than I could have done in a million years. So, and I'm, I wish you guys so well on all your travels and I hope you'll stay in touch and post lots of pictures. Um, take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Why is that happening?